right, today we are talking about the film Ragtime from 1981, which I can't believe this film was not on my radar until my mom watched the stage musical and was suggesting it mentioned there was a movie and i looked into it and blah 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 and and here we are talking about it just kind of fit right in our timeline uh but this movie was not at all what i was expecting i thought it was gonna be a musical like james cagney james cagney yankee doodle dandy and it was just gonna be this early 20th century romp through new york city and that's not that yeah we well because we had talked about this movie before when you brought it up and that your mom had recommended it because it was a musical so when i played the movie i thought it was gonna be a musical right and it's called ragtime like it's music themed so is this (laughs) is it the same like it's the same story musical because yeah like the musical is based off this story but not this movie so there's a book so the book was first obviously there's a there was the novel ragtime by okay uh, dr o and then they did this movie based on that novel, and then they also did a musical based on the novel. But is the is the musical the same like the same story as this? I think it's movie? essentially the same story. Because I don't think this would work as a this would be weird as a musical. I was kind of thinking that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so I guess that's what I was expecting though. I was expecting Chicago, which is you know kind of a crime filled musical with the women on trial for the murder. So I was you could definitely go that direction with it and make it work. But yeah, the the structure of this film is kind of a, a mess. I would say too. Like, oh yeah, there's there's too much for a movie. Like this would be a great miniseries, but. Or it could be a great miniseries, but it just, yeah. it just doesn't fully work as as a film. About half this movie needed to be cut. Yeah, basically, pick which movie you're making is what it needs to be. I was gonna yeah. say, okay, so yeah, the the movie is so it's it's kind of split up. It's like there's multiple storylines going on because you have yes, they interconnect. Yeah, right, right. They're they're interconnected, and there are characters that overlap between them. But there's basically there's <laughs> two. I, I I don't even know how many storylines. Two or three? Oh, at least. Depending on how you count it. Depends on what you call a storyline. Because, like, Manny Patinkin's character has his whole his whole story and backstory. Like, that could be a whole thing. Like, and you wouldn't even count right. him because he's, like, a side thing. And then there's, like, the well, at, at the very beginning, you have the the guy with who murders the rich dude and, and has the trial and everything. And that's, by the time you get to the end of the movie, that's almost inconsequential. Right. Like, that almost didn't matter at all to then the stuff later on with... Cole House, the piano player, and him taking the library hostage. Like, those stories are so far apart. Right, right. They have the connecting, they have a couple connecting links between them. And my understanding, too, is I, I think the novel, or maybe it's the musical, so I, I mean, obviously I, I didn't read it or see the musical, but just kind of like, as we're browsing here with our research, the vibe I got was that the film beefed up the Thaw murder stuff of Stanford White, and that, that almost gets like, almost like a uh. passing... Talk, like almost like that's prelude to the novel and may we see nesbitt interacting with the brother and stuff like he does in the film when he kind of stalks her during the trial right that that maybe is kind of where the book's at the rest of the stuff is kind of beforehand and in, in the book and maybe in the musical it was misleading a little well not misleading but i was able to think that it was going to be a musical for longer than maybe i <laughs> would have otherwise because when you when yes. the movie starts it's like there there's like the ragtime piano music and then like the the first scene that you see is a guy singing and there's like 
or am I thinking of a? Is it later on that that happens? I think you're kind of right. There's like there's, there's like a montage, and they get to the chorus girl stuff. So no, you're. I think you're kind of right. Like I, I don't remember the exact timeline, but yeah, there is there is musical things happening in like the first scene of the movie, and so yes. I that led me to believe even more that it was about to be a musical. Right. Still, so twenty minutes in, you're thinking, I think this still might be a musical. <laughs> right. Well, I, and I was like, I was like, all right, what are the rest of the songs gonna show up? Like, oh wow, this they're they're talking an awful lot for a musical, and then it turns out that it is not a musical at all. <laughs> so this this is so interesting. I I liked it though. So I I didn't rate it super high. I've started to like log films on Letterbox or whatever now. So I gave this one like a seven out of ten, but. It also kind of stuck with me. Like, I was still kind of just, it was percolating in my mind even the next day in a positive way. And so even though I still think it's a mess, and like you said, stuff needed cut, or it, I kind of like the vibe of early 20th century New York that they give us. And like I said, I really think this would work as an extended miniseries or full series where all of these storylines get to be fully fleshed out. And yeah, you're bouncing around through these interconnected things, but just like so many series you do have today. And that's where you kind of did feel too much like a novel being forced into a two and a half hour window that it could not fit into. It's like you're trying to shove this massive novel into a two hour and a half hour movie. And it just kind of then becomes a mess because of that. So obviously by the end of the movie, like you're saying like, okay, so Klaus Walker is the main character, but like, he's not the main character until the last third of the movie. (laughs) Like, right. It's like when he first gets so offended, by the guys messing with his car, you're like, why is he? Why, why is this becoming a thing? You're like, oh, this is the thing. The whole movie's about this now. Like, it's just right. You know, I think it might be better on a second watch because of that, though. Too, if we kind of know where it's going. Yeah. Well, and because it, the, so much of the like the first half of the movie is focused on ne- what's her what's the first name? Ev- Evelyn Nesbit. Ev- Evelyn Nesbit. And then she just kind of like disappears out of the movie like halfway through. And it's like, well, when is that going to get wrapped up? It's like, oh, that's already done. Like, we're done with that. We're, we're on to. Right. And so I, where I almost love this is like, oh, man. So uh, not to drop uh, Christoph Kieslowski uh, here, but like it almost feels like his like Decalogue stuff. You, you could basically do. He did like a, a series of short films where each one is a different story within the same apartment. So like the main character in one story might be just on the elevator in the third story. Mm. So that would actually work perfect for this, where you could have, like, episode one is Evelyn Nesbitt. Episode two gets into Cole House Walker. Episode three gets into the family. And they're all still interconnected, mm. but you're following a different person each time. Like, right. this, there's actually a ton of potential to do something like that with this with this material. Because like, I, thought, I thought the acting was good. I thought the, the world just really felt... Like I said, I enjoyed what I was watching. I enjoyed the movie. Right. Yeah. But it was also kind of a train wreck at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it almost kind of felt a lot like real life in that way. Yes, yes. So like at the beginning, you know, it, 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 uh, the, the narratives aren't, they weren't, you know, clean and wrapped up tidily. And, but neither is real life, right, right. And, right, and, and organized in a comprehensible way. But in real life, like if you're, if you are just, I forget the name of the character, but Grima Wormtongue. Oh, <laughs> well, no, I think he's just younger brother. That whole family is mother, father. Oh, you're right. None of them, none of them have names. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. brother, yeah, brother-in-law, brother, and and then mother. Right, but mother is brother's sister. <laughs> right, which is kind of strange. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll just call him Grima Wormtongue because that's <laughs> when I saw him. I was like, oh, hey, that's 
that's who that is. <laughs> you know, if, if you're him going through that story, you know, it's it's not it would be more uh what's the word? Disconnected yeah. with the different characters. You know, there there's there's no reason like if you're him going through going through life, there's no reason that you're the story of you with your girlfriend is going to be have anything to do with the terrorists <laughs> that you that you uh, end right. up working for. Like, there's no reason that those two things would would ever connect or come together. Right, but in a novel, novel kind of works out. And uh, no, so the biggest, I'm honestly one of the, my biggest shocks about this film was the fact that I wasn't familiar with it. This film had eight Oscar nominations. Yeah, and I I think it kind of deserves it because of the. Some things don't completely hold up, but for like a 1981 kind of period epic, it kind of checks off a lot of the boxes. And the reason I, I just hadn't heard yeah. of it is it, it didn't get a Best Picture or Best Directing nomination, but it still got eight others. And with all the production value and the and two acting nominations, I thought the guy playing Klaus Walker was great. And then sure enough, he's yeah. got a supporting actor nomination. Oh shoot, her name—I'm drawing a blank on her on her on her name—but the the girl that plays Evelyn Nesbitt. Uh- Elizabeth McGovern. Yeah, Elizabeth McGovern, who I'd seen before in Downton Abbey. She's the mom in Downton Abbey. And yeah. this is her 34 years earlier, getting her own Best Actress nomination, or Best Supporting Actress. And there are so many actors oh, in this yes. that are like, that have like little bit roles that are, you know, they're like early career roles. Right, Jeff Daniels and yeah, yeah. Mandy Patinkin. Like Mandy Patinkin, he probably has the biggest one out of all of those, like the smaller roles. But... Like Samuel L. Jackson is just yes. random guy in the background who says like one yes. line. Uh, Jeff Daniels is the cop who's on screen for maybe five minutes. James Cagney's last film. Yeah, James Cagney's last film. Uh, but it's it's cool to see. Oh, and uh, who's the Mary Steenburgen? Oh, yes, his mother. Yes, you know, and so it's it's like a well, and then uh, who was the. I'm gonna. I, I should. I should probably look at his name so I don't keep calling him Grima Wormtongue. Like that's the role that defines his whole career. He he's he's also Billy or whatever in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which is also Milo's form. Yeah. So which, who directed this film? Right. Br- oh, Brad. Is it Dorif? Yeah. Yeah. Dorif. Or, or Dor- I thought it was just Dorf. Dorf. Okay. But I could be wrong because it is spelled. It is. You're right. It is Dorif. Yeah. He's he's in it. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of a lot of cool like. Uh, hey, I recognize that guy from you know whatever. Which is yeah with uh, with Brad. You're right. It does look it's got to be Dwarf, I guess. But that's anyway. So like, what's just funny is, uh, I remember when I first discovered that Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings was Billy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then you pull up his IMDb, and it's got this picture with him with a little early 20th century dapper hat or whatever. Like that's from this movie, and so this it, it right, is kind yeah. of connective tissue because like I I couldn't even though this is only five six years or whatever after One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest here I can see it. And you can barely see the recognition just, you know, six years earlier in Cuckoo's Nest. But here I'm like, oh, this mm-hmm. guy does look like both Billy and Wormtongue, even though it's 1981, which yeah, is kind of interesting. And you know what's crazy? You know, it kind of makes me feel feel like a, an aged man. Is that that's almost as far as there's as much time between Ragtime and Lord of the Rings as between Lord of the Rings and now. Correct. Yep. Yep. Actually, yeah. If, if you go, if you go two towers, it's it's, it's exactly twenty one years either side to both. I think yep. I think it's about halfway. Yep, yeah. Yep. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's he up to now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's still doing voices. Yeah, he's he's again. He's kind of a oh, he's in Deadwood the movie. Anyway, yeah. Oh, that's right. He's a doctor in Deadwood. I forgot about that one too. Oh, he is. Yeah, the yeah. alcoholic doctor in Deadwood. No, solid actor. Solid actor. Anyway. 
Let's see. Oh, yeah, so the James Cagney thing. So he hadn't done a movie for 20 years before he did Ragtime as his final film. And simple version is he basically was okay with after retiring in 1961. I think he actually did a Billy Wilder movie uh, and then retired and was kind of just fine in retirement. But then he had a health issue that took away basically all his hobbies. So like, oh, because I'm having this health issue, I can't go do all the other things I was doing in retirement. So sure, Milos Foreman, you're asking me to do this movie. Why not? But then that kind of just ended up being his his last film. Uh, and he died of a heart attack uh, five years after this. And then I thought it was just a neat little anecdote behind the scenes was, so Howard Rollins is the guy who plays Cole House Walker, the piano player. And it basically sounds like a lot of people on set were kind of nervous that Cagney was there and just like, I mean, in a good way, like they were like so excited that he was there and it kind of made them all right. nervous. And then, so Rollins was kind of like, also then excited to ask like Mr. Cagney for advice. And he's like, how, how, do, how do I die? How do I die? And I guess Cagney's like, just die. And, he, and he's all excited. <laughs> it worked. Who would know more about dying than him? Because like, you think about Cagney playing all these gangsters. I mean, the, the scene, for those who aren't familiar with James Cagney, if you've seen the picture of the guy in the black and white movie shoving the grapefruit in his wife's face in like 1930, that's James Cagney. Like he's been doing yeah. this, doing this forever. And yeah, the mom, I'm on top of the world, like, huge hollywood legend that kind of gets his uh finale in in this film and kind of an interesting choice of casting too given the fact that at the time that they shot this he was in his 80s yeah and the character that he's playing yeah who's a real person was in his early 30s -uh. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like a 50 year age difference (laughs) okay i didn't realize that i figured he was like the established you know kind of veteran police guy that you you bring in that so of course that that's he was real but the whole Cole House Walker stuff we were talking about that's all fictionalized so most of, most of this film is completely fictional and, and honestly it gets almost kind of hyperbolic like if obviously if anything close to what we see from Cole House Walker taking this uh JP Morgan's personal library hostage and threatening to blow it up if he doesn't get his car fixed after some racist firefighters had vandalized it that's all made up <laughs> but they bring in yeah. real people to kind of deal with it both in the rhinelander waldo and then booker t washington is kind of like trying to bridge the gap there and that's kind of at the end now the beginning like you said deals with evelyn nesbitt and the the murder of stanford white by her husband henry thaw that's what i want to start talking about with the history because that is the one thing in the film that really happened stanford white was murdered by Evelyn Nesbitt's husband, Henry Thaw. Is it Henry Thaw? I keep making sure I make sure I got the right name there. Harry Thaw, my bad. So I'm gonna start with Stanford White. So he's played in the film actually by a novelist, Norman Mailer, which I thought was kind of interesting. I don't think he's necessarily known as an actor, but he wrote like Executioner Song and stuff like that. Uh he plays okay. Stanford White here. So White was a lifelong New Yorker who, unlike Thaw, did not come from money. Architects weren't really formally educated at the time. They just kind of like took apprentice jobs and learned as they went. Uh, so that's what White okay. did when he turned 18, started working as an apprentice. Uh, in 1879, he was 26. He opened a firm with two other young architects. The most notable thing that is around today that Stanford White designed is the big arch in Washington Square Park today. That was designed by Stanford White. Oh, okay. 
Is that the one that kind of looks like the Arc de Triomphe? Arc de Triomphe. Yes, yes, yep, yep. He also designed the Madison Square Garden building in which he was killed, but that's not the same Madison Square Garden building that's there today. There's actually been, side note here, I guess, so there's been four (laughs) buildings that were called Madison Square Garden. I think the first two were in the same location, but then they kind of move it down the street and still called the new one Madison Square Garden, and then they build it up. So it's been like three or four different places, and they're all they also end up being called Madison Square Garden because they're over on like Madison Avenue or whatever, or near near enough to the original. This version that was de- designed by White was around from 1890 to 1925. Uh, the one that's around today, where the next play, that's uh, like from the 60s to the present. Um, and it's not even in the same mm. in the same place, but they're all, so it's kind of it was kind of weird seeing them call this place Madison Square Garden, and I'm just like, what? Like, it just trying to make that connection between it and the modern basketball arena. Yeah, well, because it looks like there's a in the in the movie they're like, oh yeah, it's Madison Square Garden. It's like a tiny little stage and like <laughs> seating for like maybe a few dozen people, and I'm like, this is Madison Square right, Garden. Right. <laughs> right and so it's just it's always kind of been a public place and obviously there's more than just basketball that goes on there not to, but it is just a public venue for entertainment and has been since the 1800s but there's been four different versions that took that name so which is why the arch is still the most famous thing because the Madison square garden which more people know about is not the one that's around today uh, and then uh, white also helped uh nikola tesla with a tower he had built on long island okay uh, he was an art collector. And now here is a massive difference. So I kind of want to get your, because per- some of my perception of what happened in the film is now shaded by my research. So in the film, Thaw is just really pissed off about this statue that's going at the top of Madison Square Garden because it's it's a naked woman, kind of supposed to be like a Roman goddess looking thing. But the idea is that Evelyn, his wife, posed for it, and now they're putting a effectively a nude statue of his wife on top of this building, and he's extra pissed off because it's White's building, and White had had an affair with his wife before, so he's basically like, you're putting my naked wife, who I know you had an affair with, on top of your building. I demand satisfaction. And that right. that leads to the murder. And then at the trial, they convince... And I'm kind of bouncing all over, but I'm going to retreat back here in a second. But then they convince Evelyn to lie and say White had raped her and drugged her or whatever. Is that kind of the vibe you get in the film? So I, I didn't think that it was White that she was saying that White was the one who beat her. I thought she was saying that Thaw was the one who was beating her. No, 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 sorry. Behind the scenes, yes. And then they paid her off to say that that was White instead. Okay, then that went over my head. I thought she was saying that the that the husband was beating her, and that's why... Uh, and then I guess my larger point is, how do you view White's actual role then in all of this? What do you mean? The, the extent of White's relationship with Evelyn is depicted in the film. Oh, as depicted in the film, not in real life? Correct. I'll tell you about real life here in a second. <laughs> oh, okay. As depicted in the film, I don't know. It, he seems kind of scummy, but it seems like he was just like, you know, old rich dude that has all these chorus girls and, you know, probably uses his money and influence to, you know. Have affairs with them. Yeah. Do stuff with them. Yeah. 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 And and so she was doing that because she was trying to get ahead and show business and yeah it's yeah it's scummy but does he deserve to be shot in the head for that i'd probably not okay but yeah i i think you're about to to tell me that there's 
more to the real life story than what they show in the movie. The yeah, so in real life, both White and Thaw were absolute monsters. Okay, so White did rape uh, and drug Nesbit when she was like fourteen, fifteen years old. Okay, yeah, that see, that's not, not all right. right. The so film, the film doesn't give that vibe at all, right? So thirty seconds ago, when I said he didn't deserve to be shot in the head, I meant for in what the they show in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it, right, 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 right. In real life, though, for sure, for for sure, you're justified. Like, no one's going to shed a tear over that dude getting smoked. Right. So, like, way before the term grooming was used, that was White's M.O. And he would have been, like, best friends with Jeffrey Epstein. Like, so now let me go back and kind of give us uh, Evelyn Nesbitt's story and then how she ends up meeting White and all of that kind of stuff. Okay. So, so, right. I feel like the version of White we get in the film is just, like, yeah, he's maybe horny old rich guy, but he's mostly harmless. And that is not the case. He was basically Bill Cosby, but with minors. Gross. So uh, Evelyn Nesbitt was uh, born and raised in Pennsylvania. Uh, her father died when she was about 10, and the family really struggled for money. Fortunately, or maybe not, uh, she was just strikingly pretty and got recruited as a model when she was around 14. Even Evelyn didn't end up knowing her exact age. Uh, the original records were lost, and her mom would maybe like lie on her age so she could keep getting modeling work and stuff. Everything was all on the up and up, uh, at least at first. She would just kind of pose for illustrators, painters, photographers, stained glass makers, and uh, she just kind of became in more and more demand. They eventually moved to New York City, and she kind of just becomes this early 20th century it girl, just like the depiction of Feminine beauty in the early 1900s was Evelyn Nesbitt, even like as a teenager. So kind of like a Marilyn Monroe, but like 50 years earlier. Yes, yes. And like like most of us have probably seen pictures of Evelyn Nesbitt, even if you don't know her name. If you see kind of just like that smoky drawing of a beautiful woman from 1903, it's probably Evelyn Nesbitt or someone okay. of that ilk. Yeah. So modeling transitions into work in the theater and as a chorus girl. So in 1901, when she's about 15 or 16, uh, she does meet architect Stanford White, who was kind of a patron of those arts and things that she was involved with. So their, their circles basically started to overlap, where she's kind of in this art world because of her beauty, and he's in the art world because of his money. But yes, his MO does seem to be using that money and influence to groom so it's not like he's not like he's straight up you know trying to like make an offer like i'll give you a bunch of money if she comes over to my place it's more subtle and long it's a more of a slower burn than that it's like oh let me mm. help you out and introduce you to this guy oh you have to meet so and so you have to meet so and so and he's making sure he's buddy buddies with the mom he's buddy buddy with her brother and like he's like grooming the whole family to trust this rich guy to the point that he tells mom you know what you should go back to Pennsylvania, visit your family. I'll watch Evelyn for the week. Blah, 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 blah. Mom's like, okay, that sounds great. Stanford, we'll see you all later. Thank you so much. And then he drugs and rapes the daughter when mom's out of town. Jeez. And, but it's all obviously a secret for, for years. Yeah, so I feel like the film paints that all as a lie that the lawyers are trying to get her to say that. Or yeah, maybe I misunderstood that too. But the, 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 the film doesn't give you anything to that extent other than they probably had an affair. Not that, yeah, anyway. Right. And yeah, it sounds like Evelyn wasn't the first or the last that he was kind of doing this to. And uh, even as she gets older, he apparently just kind of loses interest. But it's it's weird dynamic, though. So even after this event, 
he's still then, or him, that was a one-time thing either, but he still kind of maintains this fatherly-like figure in her life. So he's kind of like both her patron and advisor and her rapist, like all at the same time because of the power dynamics. So basically just like like the most disgusting that a person can be. Right, it's, it's, Je- it's Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Like it's it's vile, yeah, yeah. And he's just doing this with everybody because he can get away with it because he's rich and it's it's 120 years ago and no one cares that men are doing these things. Yeah. yeah. Sheesh. So uh, the following year, she starts dating actor John Barrymore. He was only about four or five years older than her. Stanford White was like, you know, more than 30 years older than her. John Barrymore even asked Nesbitt to marry him at one point, but she turns him down. Her mom and uh, White were against the match because, yes, White still kind of had that kind of authority. No, you can't marry that guy. That kind of stuff. But John Barrymore is Drew Barrymore's grandfather. So, like, he huh, okay. actually had proposed to Evelyn Nesbitt at one point. She dates several other men over the next year. Um, all, again, while White is kind of just looming over her life, you know, with financial and just kind of manipulative control, even if their relationship is no longer sexual. So she does meet Harry Thaw, who is a rich guy, also from Pennsylvania, uh, and heir to his father's railroad fortune. And he did have a long history of mental instability. Uh, In fact, there's even a, I don't know if it's a good chance, but there's a chance he even sought out Nevlin romantically because of her connection to Stanford White, not despite it. Just because of like all the social circles and stuff. So like Thaw already had beef with White from all the New York City social scene. And Thaw was just an odd dude the whole time. He's just this rich, weird guy. He was obsessed with female purity. And when he and Evelyn took a trip to Europe, a lot of the destinations were like these sites dedicated to virgin martyrs. And he starts pressuring Evelyn to marry him. And because of all his ideas about purity that's when she confesses that white had raped her in a visitor book in probably you know rouen where joan of arc was was burned or maybe somewhere else wherever joan of arc was from arc um uh, <laughs> thaw wrote in a guest book that joan of arc wouldn't have been a version if stanford white had been around <laughs> and but then later on the trip again because he's a crazy person obsessed with female purity it's almost like that they talk about the uh the Madonna and the whore uh, dichotomy that gets in some men's heads that women can only be one or the other kind of thing. Uh, so he ends up, okay. so he ends up locking Evelyn, like basically just locks her up like prisoner for a couple weeks. And that's when he does beat and rape her himself over in Europe there. And oh my God, they return to New York city and Dom makes a big show of being like, sorry for everything he's done. Evelyn is apparently mad at White for not warning her about Thaw. Like, you're my, quote, father figure. Again, even though you also raped me, you didn't warn me this guy was freaking crazy and just let me kind of go off to Europe with him. This, again, this is so complicated. You kind of get why the film could not... This is the whole movie, and they make it like just a little opening bit. This could have been an entire two-and-a-half-hour movie by itself. Yes. So Thaw finally wears Evelyn down, and they are married in April of 1905. Evelyn kind of thought marrying a rich guy would mean more travel and parties and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But she was essentially just the beautiful caged bird he kept at home. Thaw then starts plotting how to take down White. 
who he's just again become he's like obsessed with so it's it's actually similar to like what we talked about and there will be blood the rivalry there where we feel like it's kind of one-sided and it's all in like uh uh eli it's all kind of in eli's head oh yeah, okay yeah, yeah. Kind of the same thing here. So, like, Thaw thinks him and White are, like, these major New York City social rivals and stuff. And, and, mm-hmm. and, like, White's like, who are you again? Like, White doesn't even give him a second thought. So, like, while Thaw thinks, like, White has goons out after him, out to get him, and he's going to... He's paranoid, basically, that White's out to get him. And White is not... Couldn't care less about him. He just thinks he's some annoying little guy over there of no consequence. So, yes, then that does all kind of culminate. So there's no statue. I couldn't find anything about the whole statue on top of the Madison Square Garden. I think that was, I think the mm. statue is the stand-in for everything I've just explained. Right, yeah. We can't explain all that. What if we just had a naked statue instead? <laughs> right, yeah. Also, probably, like, a lot more distasteful to include all of those details. like Statutory rape and stuff, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, like, people are going to feel way more uncomfortable versus if you just kind of make the statue an allegory for all of that. It's yeah. like, oh, okay, yes. I understand this. <laughs> yeah, so the murder itself did go down darn near exactly how we see in the film. Down to okay. that was the song that was playing on stage. It was at Madison Square Garden. Thaw was overdressed and kind of hot. Which is, they kind of his wife kind of says you sure don't want to take your coat off you look kind of hot and he's like oh I'm cool as a cucumber like all that is like right. exact is like what happened pretty and so uh, the, the one difference huh, is okay. even like the three shots is correct uh, the one difference does seem to be in the film he just kind of shoots him three times in the back of the head yeah in real life he actually shot him twice in the face and once in the shoulder so they kind of changed that a little a little bit. Also, it's a little more gruesome if they show him getting shot in the face versus the back of the head, probably. Yeah, special effects are probably a lot harder in 1981 <laughs> yeah, to yeah. get the uh, the face shots right. But yeah, so but this was the the fallout was massive. Like this becomes trial of the century and all the Hearst newspapers and everything at the time. And yeah, Thomas Edison rushes to put out a, f- a short film called Rooftop Murder. Within a week of the murder, of course he does. So people can put watch him on the Nickelodeon theaters because Edison's never going to miss a chance to make a dime. Of course he does. <laughs> and yeah, newspapers are talking about it from all angles. Again, there's no radio or anything. People are just buying up the newspapers. Again, this is massive. This is the biggest thing happening in the country, right. if not the world, in uh, in 1906. 1906 is when the murder takes place, and that's kind of where we put the film in our timeline here because uh, it does kind of expand. Uh, span about a decade or so so yes the the trial the the film again maybe we kind of are confused about what the film was saying but in real life yes his mom did not want her son to be labeled as insane insane or that it would come to light his whole history of mental illness but she was kind of okay with the temporary insanity angle in the in the movie i think that's what the lawyers are are going for is a temporary insanity but then i think it's the judge who kind of sees through okay. the bullshit, and he's like, all right, well, the jury says you're insane, that's fine, but it's up to me what happens to you now, and so you're going to an insane asylum because you're a psycho. Right, and he was. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, yeah. so there were reports that the Thaws offered Evelyn anywhere between 25000 and a million in exchange for testimony that kind of swung the case in their favor. Um, we don't really know for sure, so all the details we get in the film behind the scenes, that's all fictionalized. Oh, that was actually uh, another recognizable face. Uh, oh my gosh, now I gotta go look. Oh, um, Dudley, or uh, Dursley, Mr. Dursley was one of the lawyers 
from Harry Potter. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, I'm looking for the for the guy's name though. Um, Problem is, he's not first build in anything, so he's hard to find. Yeah, I'm trying to find uh, just a do to do. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I know it's Vernon Dursley. Google, but what's the actor's name? <laughs> Richard Griffiths. Okay, is the is one of the lawyers, and I was actually so I was watching this movie with my wife, and she actually picked up on that one, and okay. I was like, "Oh, you're right. That is that is." Uh, dursley from from harry potter yeah yeah but he's like he's you know he's 20 years younger and no mustache and kind of nice even though he's a weasley lawyer <laughs> yes yeah and so i didn't i didn't really i didn't really recognize him another thing the film leaves out is evelyn's family so i mentioned her her father had died when she was young but like her mom and brother are still around her mom was working with the prosecution during the trial and and things like this and also her then her brother, who had also been socially groomed by White, is blaming his sister for White's death. Because, uh, yeah, so it's yeah, just so much more, so many more layers of uh, complication. And so it was during the trial that all this stuff about White comes out. So this is kind of crazy because, like, he gets murdered and it's like, oh, upstanding citizen, rich guy, patron of the arts lawyer, murdered by crazy guy. And then during the trial, it's like, right. oh, White was a monster, and we had no idea until all this testimony comes out. Because, like, it wasn't just coming mm-hmm. out about what he had done to Nesbitt. It kind of came out that it was, like, all this stuff. So my comparison yeah. was, I was kind of mentioning he was, like, Bill Cosby, but for minors. It'd be like, we still have this image of Bill Cosby as funny family comedian. Then some guy murders Bill Cosby, and at the murder trial, you realize, oh, Cosby had raped dozens of women. Holy crap. It'd be like yeah. finding out during the murder trial. Right. So just a cra- crazy dynamic. Kind of like during the the OJ trial where OJ was like kind of a golden boy and then and then it comes I mean not not that uh, not necessarily to that same extent but like all the abuse and domestic violence oh. stuff that came out about OJ during the murder trial that wasn't necessarily I mean it, it was known uh, like by his family and stuff but it wasn't necessarily known to the public at large he was still kind of like an all-American you know golden boy athlete right yeah that's that's a tricky one because like yeah we'll side note oj here real quick so that was mind-blowing so he is hall of fame nfl athlete who was kind of a funny goofy likable actor did like you know the whichever car rental car rental commercials where he's like hurtling over stuff and just this charming everybody loves oj thing and then one day because i was in high school at the time then one day on the news um the police are chasing O.J. Simpson down the highway and his buddies driving him in a white Bronco away from the L.A. police. And we're like, what are you talking about? What is happening? His, <laughs> his wife was murdered. They think he did it? That's how bizarre it was. Now, yes, yeah. by the time the trial comes around, it's like, did he do it? He probably did it. Who else would have done it? What's going on? O.J. couldn't have done it. It was just this bizarre, bizarre right. thing. And yeah, nowadays everyone's like, <laughs> O.J. did it. Like He for sure did it, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right. And it's just... Yeah, I just remember during the time still being skeptical because like DNA evidence was new and like it would it would have totally right. railed him today. But anyway, that, yeah, but that's that's not a bad comparison though. Yes, to your point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although I mean, Stanford White was an architect; he's probably far less famous than OJ was. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But in New York City, yes, he was definitely a prominent person. Sure. So yeah. Also, if I understood correctly, because the trial was so contentious and so public. This was the first time in U.S. history that the jury had to be sequestered. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, again, it's, the way I read that, I think that's what they were saying. 
and it had to be tried twice. Uh, the first trial resulted in a hung jury, and Thaw was kind of pissed because he, he just couldn't believe anyone would vote to convict him. He saw himself as the heroic vigilante. So, right. yeah, you could argue to some extent he did eliminate the monster white, but he was also crazy in his own right. And yeah, right. So the second trial in 1908, uh, he was indeed found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity and sentenced to a mental institution, just as they show us uh, in the film. And then the film actually does show his release, which you could argue helps kind of place the end of the film on our timeline, since all the Coloss Walker stuff was fictionalized. But they do kind of show us a glimpse of Thaw getting out in the movie. He was released in 1915. So it actually took way longer, kind of to your point where... They kind of saw that as a little bit of a victory until the judge says, but you're going away to the mental asylum. It was seven years before he gets out. So long that he actually even escaped and fled to Canada in 1913 before getting recaptured and then finally deemed sane <laughs> and allowed to enter society oh my gosh. in 1915. So you can say that you can say rough with this film is, I, I swear, I think the book on Wikipedia says 1902 to 1912 we really see more of it like 1906 to 1915 based on what we're kind of seeing, based on the kind of things we know. Yeah, well, because in the second half of the movie, so much of that is made up that it's kind of hard to tell when that's supposed to be and what the the time frame is. Which is why I'm going by Thaw's release. Right, right. Yeah, but then, but because we see, you know, the trial at the beginning and then him getting released at the end, those are good kind of uh, waypoints so we know where we're at in the timeline. Oh, there's actually, and there's one other one that tells us where we are at in the end. They mentioned that J.P. Morgan is away in Egypt, which he was in 1913. Oh, and they show newspapers saying war declared. So that would have which been 1914. Be more, which would be more 1914. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Yep, yep. So that's, yeah, that kind of gives us uh, that. Okay, so finishing up Nesbitt here. So in uh, 1910, she gave birth to a son who she claimed was Thaw's and conceived like during a conjugal visit, but Thaw denied for the rest of, the rest of his life that the child was his. <laughs> so, And there's no DNA testing back then. Exactly. So was she was he crazy or was she just kind of lying and that was a way to kind of save face? Because he actually didn't get formally divorced until he got out of the mental institution uh, in 1915. In the 19-teens and early 20s, Evelyn did appear in a handful of films, though Manny Patinkin's character is fictional. She continued to work on stage and always struggled with money, alcohol, morphine. Uh, she has attempted suicide at one point. Uh, even though her and Thaw officially divorced in 1915, there were rumors a decade later that they might get back together. The newspapers kind of just never left her alone. Like anything, if they were seen, it's just a paparazzi kind of thing you see yeah. today. If those two were seen together in Chicago, it was all over national newspapers and like, you know, Nesbitt and mm-hmm. Thaw and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, but nothing that's super noteworthy after that. She uh, she died in 1967 uh, at 82 years old. There was also a 1955 movie called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, which was about White's seduction of Nesbitt. And so I'm not sure how you would do that in 1955, unless you just kind of make it a little more palatable, like you were saying. But uh, the the, yeah. the swing thing is real. So like like White's bachelor pad oh sorry i say bachelor pad white was married this whole time by the way um so his i don't know if it was his separate estate or i don't know what his wife knew or whatever but like they just kind of had this very i guess probably we call it tacky it was lavish we'd probably call it tacky by today's standards but like i think it was like a green room with this big red swing in the room you know hanging from his massive ceiling with like vines all around like the chains and like 
he would get the young girl swinging on the the thing as he's kind of part of his grooming and like so like the movie in 1955 is called the girl in the red velvet swing because white actually probably had a red velvet swing that he would have been pushing nesbitt in and getting her to have fun and let her guard down Gross. and yeah it's yeah so wrapping up thaw after his release in 1915 he was arrested again the following year for kidnapping and sexually assaulting a 19 year old man uh he later tried to commit suicide uh, before he could get captured by slashing his own throat but he was again thrown into a mental institution until 1924 uh, in 1926, Thaw publishes his memoirs and said, this is now 20 years after he killed White, and he said, I'd do it all over again if I had the chance tomorrow. The last 20 years of his life, though, were relatively quiet. He tried unsuccessfully to dabble in filmmaking and uh, died of a heart attack in 1947. The fact that that dude was ever let out of an insane asylum is kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, that's kind yeah. of wild. It, yeah, it's... I just wonder if it's a... Man- I wonder if he was like... He could probably just put on a good, like, probably just knew how to act. Like, I think he could probably, it's if it was more like a, I guess. If it was like a manic thing where he was just kind of like prone to extremes. Yeah. But if he was kind of in the right place, he could, I mean, you know, probably enough of a sociopath or psychopath that he could know how to act and get out. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So kind of a lot there. But that was the one actual things, or the actual stuff that was happening from the film. Everything else was fictionalized. But the two other prominent characters that are real that Logan's going to talk to us about here are uh, Rylander Waldo and Booker T. Washington, who make uh, small appearances in the film. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with Rylander because basically the the whole thing with him like playing this massive role and being you know in the movie is because of the fact that James Cagney is playing him. Like he's first building the film, but like he's hardly in it until the end. Right. It's just... Because it's James Cagney, though. like it's yeah. In real life, he's he is not he's not really that historically significant, to be honest. Okay. So he was born in uh, New York City, another lifelong New Yorker. His father was a stockbroker, died the year he was born. His mother was super rich. There is a uh, Rhinelander mansion. Um, it's called the Gertrude. The Gertrude Rhinelander Waldo House. Um, it's still in New York. Hmm. You can go see it. It's at 867 Madison Avenue. He went to Berkeley and the Colorado School of Mines and then West Point. And then it says on his Wikipedia page that Columbia's alumni notes show that he was a member of the class of 1899, but unclear whether or not he graduated with the class. Mm. So he he was educated, but kind of a mishmash of education from a bunch of different places. Um, He was in the army when he was uh, a young man. He fought in the Spanish-American War um, in the Philippines and actually served under General Arthur MacArthur, who is the father of Douglas MacArthur, who's the five-star general from the Pacific Theater in World War II. Arthur MacArthur? Arthur MacArthur. And, oh, and it's Arthur MacArthur Jr. So there's an Arthur MacArthur whose son is Arthur MacArthur, and there's a third. There's One of Douglas's brothers is also Arthur MacArthur. Which is funny, though, too, because... MacArthur means son of Arthur. Yes. <laughs> so Arthur MacArthur Jr. is freaking hilarious on so many levels. Yes. I'm Arthur, son of Arthur Jr. <laughs> Wait, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so he is in the army, fights in the Spanish-American War, and then uh, leaves the army in 1905 and becomes the first deputy commissioner of police in 1906. Oh, so he had just gotten that role at the time of White's murder, essentially, then. Yeah, like I said, he's a young guy. Right. 
at the time of White's murder, he would have been in his late 20s. Um, when we see the time that we see in the movie, it's unclear what year that's supposed to be, but he would have been in his early 30s, so like between 30 and 32 years old. Well, again, roughly 1913 is probably when that when that end of the film Right, was so that's, that's why I said it's, it's funny that, that they got James Cagney to play him, because James Cagney was 81 years old right. when they made the movie. So he he is older than the character he's playing by 50 years. Right, he could have been cast as Ryan Leonard Waldo's grandpa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So he makes some some reforms to the police department while he is the commissioner, uh, most notably founding New York's first motorcycle squad. Hmm. So that's that's kind of cool. He gets fired by the mayor in 1913. In 1916, he goes back into the military and ends up fighting in World War One, and then uh, leaves the military in... Or, uh, it says honorably discharged in 1919 and then commissioned as a colonel in the reserve in 1923. And then he is involved in New York City politics uh, until his death in 1927. Uh, so he's only 50 years old when he died. Mm. Yeah, didn't even didn't even live to be within three decades of as old as the guy who plays him <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, that's bizarre. So that's Rhinelander Waldo. And again, I'm pretty sure that the only reason that he has even the Wikipedia page that he does, I mean, obviously there's the, there's a, he is a historically significant person like in New York city, but a lot of it actually has to do with him being included in this, in, in the story of ragtime. And then especially being played by James Cagney in James Cagney's last role. Basically. So he's most famous for being chosen for this story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the other, big name historically that we see in the movie is Booker T. Washington. So Booker T. Washington was a black community leader. He's actually like the last big black thought leader and um, activist who was actually born into slavery. Mm. So he was born into slavery in 1856 in Virginia. His mother was a slave and his father is an unnamed white man who he never knew and Never had anything to do with him. Gotcha. His mom, after emancipation, uh, moved their family to West Virginia. Uh, so he grew up there and then attended Hampton University and Wayland Seminary. Um, and he actually had to work in like coal mines and stuff in West Virginia to be able to make enough money to walk like the 500 miles to Hampton University wow. to be able to start classes there. After schooling at the age of just 25 uh, in 1881, he was named the first leader of the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, which is now Tuskegee University. I think also between Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, it was just called the Tuskegee Institute okay. for a little while, but now it's Tuskegee University in Alabama. So he's put in charge of this this university, and there's basically no campus. He shows up, and there's there's nothing there, but he has a group of newly freed black americans who were like hey like we want to learn we want to get an education and so he basically kind of makes their education the building of the school so like oh, wow. they're making all the bricks they're building all the buildings they're make, building all the desks they're uh raising animals learning agriculture like doing all this stuff to build just to build the school that is they are also then learning skills that they can and trades that they can go use later on and so it, the whole idea was 
um, with this Tuskegee Institute that he wasn't teaching people how to be farmers or how to be builders. He was teaching people how to teach people to be farmers and builders so that they could then go into their communities and give, you know, basically black Americans who would have no opportunities otherwise useful skills. He, in one speech, said the individual who can do something that the world wants done will in the end make his way regardless of race. This is like 1870s, 1880s, or even a little later? This is the eight, This this is the 1880s. Okay, okay. Uh, and then also at Tuskegee, there was a home uh, built there called the Oaks. It's like a big, pretty house. It's still there. Uh, he lived there for the rest of his life. So Booker T. Washington's whole philosophy was this very, like, realist, pragmatist view of equality, or at least as close as you could get. So his thought was that black Americans would gain acceptance by whites and by society in general through like self-improvement and hard work rather than direct political action or direct action against Jim Crow laws like on its own. Which ties into with the version of what we see in the film trying to give advice to Cole House Walker, basically saying like Exactly. I'm just trying to show them that we're just like them and we're and we're very capable and you're going and messing that up. Exactly. Exactly. So he famously pushed for these ideas in a speech that was later called the Atlanta Compromise. Um, and it's it was called that by other thought leaders, specifically W.E.B. Du Bois, who thought that he was being too he was basically he, that, that he was telling black people to bend the knee too much, that they should you know, have a little bit more pushback, a little bit more um, direct action against Jim Crow laws. But he gives a speech in 1895 called the Atlanta Compromise Speech. I have a quote here that kind of sums it up, a quote from the speech, uh, no race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world is long in any degree ostracized. So his whole thing was, look, just kind of keep your head down, farm your farm, build your products, make yourself useful, contribute to, you know, the markets contribute to society in your own way. And that's how we'll gain acceptance because they'll see that we are people too. And we can be, we can contribute to America just as well as white people can. And that's not to say that he, but, but it sounds a little naive, but right. But at the same time, like at the time that he gave this speech in 1895, that was like the highest rate of lynchings ever. So he's saying like, look, if you stick your neck out, like literally stick your neck out, you could be killed for that. So you don't have to, he he was telling people like, you don't necessarily have to, you know, get aggressive and violent. Like if, you you know, if you, uh, almost like a... He's basically saying, don't go to war, we're gonna lose. Just keep your nose down and do your work. Right, and work within the Jim Crow system and at least you'll be alive and eventually we can get these people to come around but it's going to be kind of a long, slow process, right. but that's the way that we have to do it if we don't want to all just get outright slaughtered. And it was also kind of a double message. So he's telling, you know, making that message to the black community, but at the same time is trying to use that message to reassure white people in the South. Right. Like, hey, we're not trying to, like, do an uprising or anything. We're just going to contribute to society the best that we can. And if you just leave us alone... We can do our thing over here. You can do your thing over there. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to come to the campfire and sing Kumbaya, but like, just kind of let us have our farms and it'll be all right. And another quote from him here that illustrates that idea, he said, in all things, 
that are purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand, in all things essential to mutual progress. It's interesting how the time we said that speech was 1895. 1896 was Plessy versus Ferguson that established, established separate but equal as a you know perfectly okay and acceptable solution. It all sounds like Washington himself might have been okay with that court case. Now, the, obviously, the downside ends up being it was never actually equal. It was just separate. But if they actually had been equal, it almost sounds like Washington might have been like, yeah, that's fine. Well, it'll all work out eventually. Right. Well, it, not that he was fine with that as an end state. Like he would have he still wanted integration, everyone to be equal okay. and integrated eventually. And just, you know, basically to get past Jim Crow. But he was saying like we he didn't want for that to be done through like violence and direct political no, right, action because right. he thought that that would just that that would basically poison the tree before it ever gets a chance to grow there you go like they're just gonna they're just gonna be resentful of us and we're never gonna make any progress that way okay versus if you have you know if everyone is if, if we have these this like highly educated highly skilled black community that after you know a long period of time we can point to and say look at everything that these people have accomplished and you know look at all the great things they've done and all the contributions they've made that's why we need to be equal but that takes time, and also they were everyone, you know, was, they were living under Jim Crow at the time. He wrote a bunch of books. Um, his most famous one is called "Up from Slavery" that he wrote in 1901, in which he urged readers to maintain peaceful relations by adhering to Jim Crow laws and working within the system. He was uh, an advisor to multiple presidents, specifically Roosevelt and Taft, because the uh, Republican Party was you know, very much founded, well, it basically was founded specifically to end slavery. He would, you know, the these black thought leaders were very popular in the Republican Party. Um, and he was actually the first black person to be invited to the White House as an equal to the other white leaders. As opposed to like a servant or something. Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, right. which the film shows. That actually is a little uh, yes. highlight reel while he's playing the piano. It's one of the newsreel things they show. Right. So they, they I don't know if, if it's a... Uh, because they put it in the movie that dinner that meeting with uh Roosevelt was in 1901 mm. so i think it might be out of the timeline a little bit uh, but yes they do they do show that he wasn't the first person i guess he was the first black person to be invited to the white house as an equal publicly oh interesting there had been other people that had been like frederick douglas had been to the white house and met with lincoln true but it wasn't like he he wouldn't make a big show of like this is yeah, this okay. big you know meeting that i'm having with these you know, black thought leaders. Gotcha. The first time that that happened was in 1901, and that was with uh, Roosevelt and Washington. Uh, a lot like Waldo, he also died relatively young. He died of congestive heart failure at the age of 59. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, in, in 1915. So not not long after the end of this movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just like, so 1913 is when... JP Morgan was in Egypt, then that times out with just a couple years after this inter- this fictional intervention with Colehouse Walker. Interesting. Right. Yep. So he he continued to advocate for black equality, but in his way, through, you know, the hard work, very much a kind of I absolutely hate this saying, but pick yourself up by your bootstraps type deal. And he, you know, continued his work in the Tuskegee Institute all the way all the way up until his death. Well, I'm trying to think of putting him. So uh, my initial thought was I was thinking of the dichotomy between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And I was trying to say, like, okay, so at first my thought was Du Bois is 
Malcolm X and Washington is Martin Luther King Jr., but in reality, Washington is is neither of them. It's almost like a triangle where you have the right. militant, aggressive Malcolm X. You have the passive Gandhi-like resistance of Martin Luther King Jr. But then Washington makes a third side and it's just like, no, just be the best person you can be and it'll take care of itself eventually. We don't actually have to be out there pounding the pavement like Martin Luther King Jr. wants. And I'd be curious right. to see, though, as the decades had evolved, you know, maybe a king might have said, I agree with Washington's spirit, but that's not working. Therefore, I'm transitioning. So I almost wonder if, if uh, Washington had lived later or longer or how, he, how his position would have evolved, if at all, over the years. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And the whole thing with Washington, and he was kind of right about it in a way, was that he was saying, even if it's a peaceful resistance, like a Martin Luther King, you know, like peaceful resistance type movement, that will still... Anger people because it's agitation. That will still inflame people enough that they're going to retaliate in violent ways. Which we and saw. he was right. He was right, right. Right. But the people that were, you know, like W.E.B. Du Bois, and then, you know, later on, like a Martin Luther King Jr. was like, well, we don't have the time to just wait around and it's... It's not fair, and so we need to change it. And Washington's whole thing is, well, it's not, as, <laughs> as, as my dad likes to say, life's not fair, but it is real. So, like, it's, you're right, it's not fair, but also, if you don't want violence to be done upon you, then maybe we need to just kind of bite the bullet and, you know, stay in the system. Be less pissed off about life not being fair? Right. If, if we want... If you want to have the change without the violence. Right, right. That's fascinating. So I had actually kind of made some notes. So this is the other big thing I think we can kind of talk about with the film, or at least this point in our timeline, that the film deals with, even though it does so fictionally, is race relations. Like a massive theme of the film is race relations. So when Klaus Walker's car is vandalized and he even goes to get the cop, we see the cop. Treating not the cop is not essentially initially Jeff Daniels is not treating him in a racist manner, but he just quickly kind of becomes, Hey, don't you get it? This is going to be a lot easier if you just go away and don't make a fuss. And I'm going to choose arresting you for making a fuss over challenging this group of five white firefighters. Don't you get that? That's the reality of the situation, but it's almost like that would be the Washington situation uh, suggestion probably would be. Dude, just brush it off, turn the other cheek, and walk away. Just be the better person. But Klaus Walker's like, I demand satisfaction, and I'm not going to let this go. Right. So I want to look at then the larger issue of race relations at the time, as much as I can maybe keep that to about five, ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's because we are now post-Civil War, but pre-Civil Rights Movement. Yes. That's going to be something that comes up a lot in the timeline. <laughs> Yes, yes, but not necessarily in the films we pick. So I thought this was ma- this may be oh, a major true, one true. where this is actually our time to talk about it because the film Ragtime does deal with it very pointedly. Correct. Yeah. So you mentioned the you said 1895 was roughly the high point for lynchings kind of thing. So yeah, this period I I, I think it was African American scholars had called this period roughly I think it was called the nadir of. African American race relations are—I forget exactly. Oh, Nader. Nader. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it, Nader, as opposed to Apex. 
Nader is like the very bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. That makes sense. The low, so, yeah, basically calling it the low point of relations. So, you see, in the massive lynchings, we always kind of think about it later. And obviously, it was bad for a long time. So, the period is kind of even then debated. So, some people will say that this this low point, that's probably a better way to, uh, since even I wasn't sure how to use that word correctly. <laughs> I was thinking it actually did mean top and not bottom. So, anyway, I, I knew it was an extreme. So, some say this kind of bad window begins uh in 1877 with the end of reconstruction you've mentioned when they pulled the the northern troops out of the south um others say it was more of an 1890s start because that's when northern republicans kind of stopped their support for southern blacks and just kind of said good luck so somewhere there is kind of the beginning of this low point where now all of a sudden right. it almost like it opens up for the south to be more vindictive than it could have been in 1875 is probably maybe the way to say that right and then that kind of extends through again the end date is uh definitely debated um some say it got better after 1901 uh some say it didn't get better until 1923 and then some say it was a, still a major problem until the u.s enters world war ii in 1941 and of course you could also argue it extends to the civil rights movement and then even to today but as far as the low point though if you're saying the low point I mean, obviously, things are better now than they were. Things were probably even better in the 60s, as bad as they were, than they were. Right. Than they were in the 1890s. And, and that's because it's because of what the public's aware of. So, yes, we, 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 you can point to right. a million things in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 2010s, whatever. You can point to a million things. But they were worse in the 1890s and early 1900s. Yes. Because you're just having... These, like I said, lynchings with no consequences. It wasn't like these guys were getting arrested right. and going on murder trials. They would just go kill the black guy down the street, and then nothing happened. Right. As as shitty as it is to think about, it is technically progress to have a trial. Oh, this this right, right, right. So this guy, this guy murdered a you know a black guy and goes on trial, and the jury knows that he's guilty, but votes to acquit him anyway because they don't care because they're all racist. That is technically progress from, oh, yeah, this black guy got murdered in public and nobody cared because he wasn't even considered a human and there was no trial, there was nobody arrested, nothing, and it was just broad daylight murder. Right. So the sentiment that you get in the United States at the time, and especially in the South, South, so there's something called the Dunning School, like school of thought, I guess is how I understood this. Okay. And so basically, and of course, scholars in the North were also pushing this agenda but the idea was that post-civil war during reconstruction there was corrupt and undue inappropriate northern influence on the south and they were using winning the civil war as an excuse to take financial advantage to put unqualified blacks in positions of authority and to basically just basically this whole school of thought that said the whites in the south were victims of reconstruction and needed to fight back for their rights within this new post-Civil War system. So basically any of these people that were going around doing these lynchings were freedom fighters in, in, the, in the perception of some of these whites at the time. Um, that's why when you get to D.W. Griffith's Birth of the Nation film in 1915... I was just going to say that. Yes. Yeah. That that was very much part of that segment of you know the zeitgeist or whatever at the time and it's like how are they painting the Ku Klux Klan as heroes it's because right. in their minds they're fighting against the oppression of reconstruction and the north influencing its will on the south 
And they talked about the idea that giving African-Americans the right to vote was a massive mistake and it just causes all of these problems and that the, quote, black race is, you know, was not ever designed or is ever capable of running a civilization. Like it just this was like a popular thought at the time. Right. For decades here, post Reconstruction, pre-World War Two. Birth of a Nation was a massively popular movie and it's about the KKK and they're the good guys. Yes, yes. And it was made in 1915, and everyone's like, heck right. yeah, look at this movie about these good guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so our film, the film today is set, obviously, in the north, in New York City, but they were dealing with the uh, with uh, race relations, obviously, as well. So from you, you get something during this period called the Great Migration. So basically, why do all major cities have these large African-American populations to this day? Well, it's because they fled the South in massive numbers, mostly between, I mean, obviously before and all throughout, but like most, the biggest uh, influx was between 1910 and all the way up to 1970. Uh, about 6 million African Americans moved north uh, during that time. And basically, cities were the only place they could go. Mm-hmm. So until 1910, 90% of African Americans lived in the South. By 1970, it was down to about 50% in the South. Yep. This also is what gives us the massive shift of African-Americans from rural to urban. And, right. I mean, shoot, o- urban is almost even code for black sometimes nowadays. But, like, yeah. obviously, they were brought over as slaves and farmers and then remained as right. farmers in Reconstruction area as best they could. So right. it flipped from 1910 to 1970 to 20% urban, 80% rural, to then by 1970, 80% of the African-American population was in urban areas and only 20% in rural areas. Right. And that's, which is, yeah, it, it is kind of wild to think about that, yeah, at that time, 90% of black Americans were in the South and on farms. And now they're in cities so much that, like you said, urban or inner city is code for black right right so yeah so we've mentioned many times before the north is always racist too just it was kind of different racist so they they being the collective north didn't react well to this influx of african americans and the one thing you get during this time is and i was kind of familiar with this but something called sundown towns are you familiar with sundown oh towns? yeah yeah okay yep so just the idea that, well, one, towns were kicking out what African-Americans were there. But two, they would actually have laws in the books that African-Americans could be shot after sundown. Right. Basically like a, uh, almost like a hunting season. Yeah. Like, like, all right, like, okay, they can be, you can be here during the daytime. As soon as the sun goes down, though, it's fair game. Can't guarantee your safety. Right. And these were laws on the books. And Right. Yeah. So what's interesting, so I remember... In the 90s, in high school, one of my classmates mentioned that, oh, in uh, Douglas, Kansas, it's legal to shoot a black person after, after at night. And I was just thinking, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe you believe that. And now I'm like, oh, now obviously in the 90s, it wasn't still legal. But she right. was probably right that that law may have still been on the books and just technically never re- uh, revoked. Or that yeah. it was on the books at some point, and that Douglas, Kansas right, probably was... Yeah. I haven't researched Douglas Kansas specifically. Sorry for right. anybody I know from there. But like <laughs> that it may have been one of these sundown towns that might have had one of those laws on the books. And that yeah. she wasn't crazy. And that it was actually true. And I was naive for not believing that that was a law right. on the books. Which right. Just crazy. A lot of this violence 
this race-based violence in the South is also a reason that you had a lot of black families move um, out West. So like California, specifically Los Angeles, their black population exploded in the early 20th century. Right. uh, Because so many people were leaving, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, all the all the South, and then going out west to to L.A. Yes, yeah, that's right. I, I think I was saying the North. I, I meant basically everything that wasn't the South. Yeah. So yes, West as well, right? Um, we were talking about uh, O.J. before, oh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> not to make this the the O.J. episode, but uh, there is the the ESPN O.J. documentary miniseries, mm. which is really really good. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh. Uh-uh. It's awesome, but the whole, like, the whole first episode, they go, like, they set the context for race relations in L.A., and it goes all Mm. the way back to, like, this time, like, early 20th century. Right. People leaving, the demographics of L.A. changing. Right. So, yeah, I I would highly recommend people check that out if they haven't seen it. So, this attitude we're talking about, this idea of that there's an aggrieved white population being victimized by blacks having rights is then when you start getting all of these confederate monuments put up not just in the south but like all over the country so it's like why would montana need to put up a a statue for a confederate soldier to tell black people they're not welcome there so when you look at then today we're now starting to take these statues down and people are talking about history it's like yeah the history of racial oppression is why those statues are there in the first place so i'm all for the whole museum side of things, but when you're talking about these statues being in public places, you have to understand the history of why they're there in the first place, and it's tied into everything we're talking about here. Aren't, aren't a lot of those statues, like, they're of, you know, like, Civil War era generals and stuff, but a lot of them weren't put up until... Like, the 19-teens and 20s. On, like, in, right. in the 20th century, like, well into the 20th century. Right, right. And I and there's, and there's I, I don't have any, I didn't pull any of these up, but you can even look at some of the uh, speeches given at dedication events for these statues, and it's very much about white power, essentially. Like, yeah, these are, it's horrible. You do get the NCAA, sorry, <laughs> I keep saying, I'm showing the NCAA, NCAA NAACP <laughs> established in 1909 as kind of a response to this attitude. And that's kind of mm-hmm. why that kind of times in there. And then you also get into some of the stuff that goes beyond our timeline. Uh, again, some of those statues are kind of more and more 1920s. Uh, I was trying to look up redlining. Redlining is more of a 20s and 30s thing. I don't know if we'll get to it on our timeline. Again, it's not like movies about redlining, but basically just the idea that certain areas were carved off where blacks were not allowed to buy property. And then white people were told, oh, you don't want to go here because that's where the blacks live. Like, so all these red linings on maps, that's kind of a 20s, Mm. 30s thing that kind of essentially creates what we would call slums today in the United States. The Tulsa race massacre was uh, 1921. So some of this stuff is after our timeline here, but it is all that same sentiment of this uh, perceived white victimhood at the expense of not wanting to allow african americans to live in society essentially and then yeah the few little tiny buttons here to kind of add at the end i didn't make a note that it was a a massive fourth amendment violation when uh so he's holed up in the library and so the police just take over the apartment across the street and like (laughs) basically like we're in charge here now this is we're using your space for this police thing because it's right across the street uh you can't do that. Yeah, they literally break into the house. They like right. They break into the yeah. house, like kick the family out, or basically say, "Hey, we'll go ahead here." When they just start taking over, and like 
Like, that's just a thing you can do. I'm like, yeah, that's that's not allowed. <laughs> Same thing when they, like, essentially kidnap that firefighter guy. Like, yeah, he's oh, right. a criminal, but also you can't just break into his house in the middle of the night and just, like, they're not arresting him. They're bringing him there to basically threaten him. Be bait. <laughs> to say, right, to be bait and to say, we're going to let this guy kill you if you don't do what we want. <laughs> <laughs> We also do get an appearance from Teddy Roosevelt's uh, vice president, Charles Fairbanks. He's actually not listed or hyperlinked mm. on the Wikipedia page, but he does give a speech kind of early on in, in the film, which is kind of campaigning. And so we see him. He was, that was, they get the right name. I didn't do anything research about him just because he just kind of makes a quick cameo there. And then, so a lot of the film, I think the family that's just father, mother, brother, they're in New Rochelle. And obviously, I've heard of New Rochelle, but I wasn't really super familiar with it. It is just a New York City subway, uh, subway, suburb. It's basically just northeast of the Bronx. So it's not technically part of New York City, but it is right next to New York City, just kind of northeast of the Bronx there. Okay, that'll do it for Ragtime. Join us next time as we look at one of the greatest American athletes from the early 20th century with the 1951 film Jim Thorpe, All American. And don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash historyinfilm for a little more of us. And you can always email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Thanks for listening and catch you later.